This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Welcome to the 28th Annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty at the university. Today we have with us the great N. Scott Mamaday, novelist, poet, playwright, Native American scholar, described by the New York Times as the dean of Native American writers. He brings the landscape alive. He brings the culture alive. He brings ancestors alive with his writing. And we're doing the interview just a little different this time. We're here in Chile, Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we'll be conducting our interview with Dr. Mamaday in the comfort of his living room. Scott Mamaday, welcome to the Writers' Symposium by the Sea. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled that you would open your home to us, so thank you. Welcome. You have said that all stories come from one cell, one story, and the original story. What, what is that story? I don't know. It, it can be any number of things. The important point is that, that uh, there is one story, but there are many stories in the one. And, tra- and tracing down, trying to, trying to find out what, the, what the, the first original, the original story was is impossible. But that's the attempt of writing, right? That's just to, right. Just to that's drill right. into it? Yeah. I think I, I wrote somewhere that the, 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 the story has to do with um, a man who goes out on pilgrimage and uh, comes back to his home, a hero, and uh, his wife has been faithful or unfaithful, and his son has uh, become important in the story. Uh, but it's a story of pilgrimage, I think, you know? and and that's repeated again and again and again in in my, in my culture anyway. So makes for good 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 storytelling. Well, you you've also said that the original that the original story and that all stories come out of this root of uh, God's pursuit of man. You've said that in the past too, which struck me as different because I would have thought it would be the other way around. It would be man's pursuit of God. But what, what, what does that mean, God's pursuit of man? I think I heard that uh, in something that uh, was said by an actor at one time. He was talking about having purchased a painting in, by a French painter, and he was very proud to, to have this new painting in his possession. And the, the title of the painting was God's Pursuit of Man. And I thought, That's, yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, We're all pursued by God. And that's where this, these creative urges are, uh, are always addressing that? Is that what you mean? Well, largely anyway, yes. I think that's, that's a dominant theme in literature and probably in painting and other forms of art. When you mentioned The Pilgrim's Journey, I was thinking of Joseph Campbell and his discussion of myth and the hero's journey and pilgrimage. Um, but you connect ancient myths differently from how he described them. You, you are connecting to the story of the Kiowa people and uh, of Native American people. So do you, do you ever think of myth in the way Joseph Campbell did, uh, where it's the hero? Certainly I know 
I know Joseph Campbell and and I, I have a high regard for him and I I'm very much interested in myth. I like to quote uh, Borges, who said that myth is at the beginning of literature and also at its end. And uh, that's a good, uh, a good thing to keep in mind as you're, as you're writing or painting. But you're always drawn to the myths of where the Kiowa people came from. Is that true? Uh, it's, it's, it's very important in my mind and in my work. You know, the, 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 the origin myth of the Kiowas has it that they came into the world through a hollow log. And I like, to, I like that, uh, that figure, that image. And I've always wondered what was on the other side of the log. I don't know. No one does. But, you know, it's fun to speculate. Oh, I agree. I agree. You know, I'm, I'm thinking you knew you wanted to be a writer. I think it was at age eight. <laughs> uh, you told your mom that you wanted to be a writer. Uh, how did she react to that? I think she said, good, good. Because she was a writer. She was she? a writer herself. So I think she was pleased that I was thinking in those terms. But it, it's clear to me now, Dean, that you know more about my life than I do. <laughs> so maybe I should be interviewing you. Yes, I'll tell you when, when your answers are correct. And oh, thank you. Correct. All sure. right. Sure. Good. Uh, but a mentor told you to imitate people you admired and one of the people that you started to imitate was Robert Frost. Why Frost? There are a lot of great poets. He's one of them, but why Frost? I think he's, he's very accessible, for one thing. He's, he writes in a very plain style, and uh, it's easy to read him. And uh, he can teach you a lot about poetry. Uh, the, I think you may be referring to a priest who was... At Hamas Pueblo, when I was there, he was the postmaster, and a great poet, Fray Angelico Chavez. And I used to go down, and uh, when the mail was distributed, I, I would uh, corner him and talk about poetry. And he was very, he said, don't be afraid to imitate uh, writers that you admire, because you will eventually find your own voice. And I think that's true. It was good advice. That is good advice. Yeah, eventually, your own voice, your own uh, perspective develops. But yeah, I mean, why not start there? Why not start with the great ones? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so you've written a lot just about the concept of what words do and what stories do. And, and I, th- I think a lot of us intuitively already know the value of a word or the value of a story, but you've actually thought about this. And, and you've articulated that words have power. So I want to hear your explanation of what are words. Words do have power. In fact, uh, <clears throat> offhand, I can think of nothing more powerful. Um, words are sacred. Language is sacred. I'm interested in the origin of language. We don't know when it began or where or how, but uh, I like to speculate that... Uh, uh, in fact, it was, um, oh, what writer am I thinking of now uh, who wrote The uh, Fragile Species and the Origin of a Cell? Lewis Thomas? Yes, yes. Lewis Thomas has a book called The Fragile Species in which there is a chapter entitled Communication, which is a bad, bad word, bad title, I think. But, but he says, I think I know how language began. There were people living in caves and they were having a hard time communicating with each other, They're growling and 
you know. But he said, one day, <clears throat> a neighboring tribe came across the ridge to visit. They spent the day, but they brought their children with them. And suddenly, he said, we had a critical mass of children. They played all day long. And at the end of that day, we had language. And I think that makes a lot of sense because children, they're not afraid of language. They love to play with it, you know, and that's what you need. As we grow older, we have less uh, less sympathy, less uh, appreciation of language, I think. But but it's there and it's sacred. And uh, we, we don't know what the limits of language are. No, and this that story, which is beautiful, I, I hadn't read it, um, uh, but it, it, it actually amplifies what you have said in the past where you wrote once, words are the intricate bonds of language. Words make a family, a tribe, and a civilization. Language is the context of our experience. People had experiences before they had language, though, right? So, why, so what, what does language do that helps family, tribe, civilization? It interprets uh, the, 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 the feelings of people. You say there were, there, were, there were things before language, of course, but they, those things needed expression, the expression that language gives them. And uh, when you have that combination, that formula, you, you have something to build on and becomes becomes the rock of civilization, yes. Language is, you're saying language is the rock of civilization? I think I would say that, yes. You want to fight about it? No, no. <laughs> I, want you to, I want you to tell me why. Well, I'm not I, interested in fighting you. Oh, all right. Uh, how, how can I better put it? Um, people were living together before before they had language, okay? That's, that's a given. There was a time when that was true. And with the, with the discovery of language and the incorporation of language into their lives, they were able to understand and it, it, uh, it uh, sparked the imagination. And they became uh, people who were creative and uh, communicative. They started telling stories. Exactly, exactly. I think maybe, you know, the first story somehow is, uh, is like the beginning of language. Yeah, I, I, I love thinking about that. And, and you've spent so much time articulating the value of storytelling. You've got this great line that says, what is involved in storytelling is awe, astonishment, imagination, belief, and holy dread. Those are your words. I'd love to know what you mean by holy dread. What's, what's that about? I think dread is a, an interesting concept, and it's, 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 it, has a, it has its place in language. Um, we, do, we, do, we are made, motivated by dread. Really? We, I think so, but partly. Not, that, that's not the whole story, but it's, it works well. It, uh, it is, uh, dread is uh, something that is entirely human, it seems to me. We dread things. We are, fear is another concept that uh, is, uh, is at the root of language, I think. That's interesting. And, and, and 
So maybe stories and language are a way to address fear, are a way to maybe prepare us uh, to avoid certain things that we might otherwise have been afraid of. I, I do have this, uh, uh, this sense of as stories developed and got locked in over time, things that people said before there was actually storytelling, um, that changed over time, right? But stories, when it, when it became story and when it became written story, that sort of locked it in. Right. I think of I think of the book of Genesis or I think of Beowulf or things that you've written about before. Those were spoken for a long time. But the writing of it has put some limits on it, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. When you talk about language before writing, you, you, you really write down my alley because I've spent all virtually all of my teaching career teaching the oral tradition. And so the spoken word, I think, is uh, we, we neglect it in our time. We, we don't appreciate it. But everybody has an oral tradition. You know, everybody has it. We speak. And uh, speech and uh, language are, are essential to, our, to literature. I think the greatest, uh, the greatest expression of the oral tradition in our time is drama, plays, because you have living people on the stage who are talking to each other and, and making contact, of course, with the audience as well. But that's a, that's a wonderful example of oral tradition. Yeah. And other than that, is it still part of kind of who we are or is it yes. all kind of written down now? Oh, I th- no, no. I think there's a great deal of oral tradition that has not been written down. <clears throat> There are stories in oral tradition that are extremely uh, inventive, and uh, uh, we have those. We don't think about them as, as much as we ought to, but yes, if you take you know, we have examples of of uh, written literature that did come from oral tradition. Beowulf is a good example, the first poem in English, but it was recited uh, long before it was written down. We don't know how, how old it is, but it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of literature. So we have things like that, and we, we need to know more about it. Yeah. Yeah, th- and there are some things that just, they're better when you hear them, as opposed to oh, when you read them. Yeah. And I think some of the, the stories that my grandparents used to tell, if I, if I were to just read them now, I'd think, ah, not so much. But to hear it come from those authentic voices, yes. it means a lot more. If you if you should hear Hamlet, for example, on the stage, it it uh, makes a it makes a, a, a much greater impression than to the reading of it. I think. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah. You know, um, your book *Housemaid of Dawn* was such a powerful story of this the Native American experience in modern culture. Person comes back from war doesn't fit in. Now there's this dominant culture. And he's trying to maintain, this character is trying to maintain his identity. There, there was, there was a, that just hit at the right time, didn't it? With, um, that was, that's, well, that's been the, the struggle continuously. Um, but what was it about that novel at that time that you think resonated so well? <laughs> 
it told the story of a man who loses his his uh, identity, his traditional identity, and uh, that that in itself is a tragedy. But it was it was uh, well widespread during the Second World War. Say that's that's the time of the setting. That's the setting of uh, House Made of Dawn. But uh, so many young men of that generation were exposed to a world they had no knowledge of, and, and unfortunately, it was a world at war. So they were they were deeply damaged in many instances, and they came back to their homeland. And they were lost. It was, and then there was this desperate struggle to, to uh, recover the traditional world, and, and some did and some didn't. Abel, we don't know because the ending is an open ending. The ending is a little uh, obscure there. As you, you have to finish it yourself as the reader as to what happens. Yes, I like that. I do too. I, rather than wrap up all the loose ends, no. When I when I read that ending, uh, I thought I respect that ending. Oh, good. Okay. Um, but you didn't even know it was nominated for a Pulitzer. No, until, I didn't. I didn't until you got the phone call, right? I got the phone call from my editor at Harper Harper and Row. It was then, and uh, she said, "Scott, are you sitting down?" And I said, "Come on, Fran. I'm busy. What do you want?" She said, "You've won a Pulitzer Prize." And I, I said, yeah, friend, yeah, sure I am. And then it dawned on me that I really had. And it was a wonderful thing. It changed my life in certain ways. Uh, brought me a lot of acclaim and uh, recognition and gave me an incentive to write some more. So I did. Well, and what I think is interesting is, is were you thinking of yourself as a novelist at that time? I, it seemed to me that you were thinking of yourself as a poet. And... You also had done this novel. So was, wasn't that uh, a, a little bit kind of, wow, I wrote, I wrote a novel and I'm not even a novelist. Yes, yes. That was very, very much on my mind. I did uh, <clears throat> write poetry exclusively when I was at Stanford. With one exception, I did write a short story, but uh, m- mostly poetry for, for like, uh, like three to four years and I found myself in a corner, uh, and I wanted elbow room. So when I, when I got my first uh, teaching post at Santa Barbara, I began the novel. And uh, it was a wonderful thing to do, this change of pace and, and so on. So I became a novelist, and that uh, was not what I set out to be, but there it was. So you had written yourself into a corner as a poet? Yeah, so yeah. So just I, thought, I, uh, forget that. I'm going to go on and write I, was, I got tired of writing poetry. And uh, because I, that's all I did for those four years. And so I, I, I came out of Stanford thinking, I need more elbow room. I'm going to try something else. So I did. Well, winning a Pulitzer for your first novel, especially when you don't actually consider yourself a novelist, mm-hmm. Uh, that could have put enormous pressure on you, right? To say, okay, I, whatever I do now, I'm the Pulitzer Prize winning N. Scott Mamaday. Or I, th- I think it actually worked the opposite for you. It just kind of freed you up to do what you wanted to do after that. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, once I had the, the novel under my belt, I, I felt uh, free to go back to poetry. And I still consider myself a poet rather than a novelist. But I've written in so many different forms, you know, plays and 
travel literature and essays and and uh, two novels and uh, a good deal of poetry. And that's, that's fine with me. I like that uh, production. It didn't put too much pressure on you. I, I, I think like Annie Dillard wins the Pulitzer Prize for her first uh, book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. And she says that that just raised the expectations so high for anything that she did after that, that she just felt all this pressure. You, you weren't that? You weren't that way? I don't think so. The novel certainly did put some pressure on me because I, when I finished it, I was getting suddenly invitations to women's garden parties and uh, invitations to write uh, for different publications and so on. So it, it uh, saved me from the, the, uh, the parish. Oh, the publisher parish kind yeah, of vibe. That, yeah. Sure. So I didn't have to worry about that. It, was, it gave me a kind of freedom. But yes, there was some pressure to how do you, how do I follow that? You know, and I was aware of that, and uh, I think it slowed me down for a time. But hmm. but it didn't matter in the long run. Well, because the your second novel, uh, Ancient Child, was not as popular as Housemaid of Dawn. Did that bother you that it didn't reach that same level? Yeah, it did. It did because it's a, it's a fine novel. I think I, it's a great novel. I, I like it, and I I uh, wanted. I I got a bad review in uh, the New York Times, and that did hurt. But uh, the, the reviewer didn't. He wanted me to write a book, another book, and I didn't. Try, I didn't write the one he wanted, so he he uh, was kind of hard on me, and it, it was not as uh, as uh, well received as Housemaid of Dawn certainly. But uh, I'm proud of it. I think it would make a great movie, and I haven't uh, haven't convinced anybody of that yet. But uh, it's very, you know, the character of uh, Gray in that book is uh, an interesting one. She's uh, oh, she's wonderful. She's she's yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. And of course, Billy the Kid is an old friend of mine. And so I, I got him into the novel. And yeah, you certainly did. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, what I loved about the novel is that you did so many different things with time. Hmm. You, were, you were in the present and then clearly in the past with Billy the Kid. And, and then you were connecting all of these ancient myths that I've read of yours, you know, about the Kiowa people and all of these different. And you weave all of that together in this book. However, there's here's here's a uh, in that book you describe Gray trying to write. I think she was trying to write about Billy the Kid in this uh, in this novel, and you say her experience was laborious, confusing, frustrating, and maddening. And then here's the quote: "But once in a while, she would she would write something that pleased her, that seemed very close to what she wanted." And that satisfaction was like no other that she knew. It was the satisfaction of having done what was in her to do, of having reached the best that was in her, of having been true to her purpose and herself. I'm guessing you've had that experience. You're yes, describing I, your own experience there, right? Exactly, yes. I, that's the way I feel about things. I, uh, writing is can be laborious and uh, hard, very difficult to do. But if you do it, to your satisfaction, 
you know, there's there's no feeling that's better than that, I think. So that's the reward of writing. But for writers, how often does that satisfaction actually occur? Are you one of these guys who know. just carves this pearl and it's awesome? Or are you struggling? Once in a while, I write to my potential. And that's the... Uh, I think I do anyway, and I, and uh, that's that's a great side. That's what keeps me writing, you know. That's that's make, makes everything worthwhile. Wouldn't you think, after all that you've written over all these years, it would be more than once in a while? Well, I, I suppose so. It's it's happened a good many times uh, to me, and and I'm very grateful for that. But I I don't know, you know. In, in the long run, I'm I'm not sure what. Uh, of my work is really uh, satisfactory to me. I, hmm. I achieve a certain level at times, and if it's a if it's a high level, if it if it meets my expectations and maybe exceeds them, that's great. That's as I say, the justification for writing. But I'm sure that I've written quite a bit that doesn't doesn't uh, satisfy me to that extent. You've got another character in that book where you describe he's an he's an artist and you describe him uh, almost in the, well not almost in a kind of a manic state. You say he's uh, he's afflicted, headed for a nervous breakdown. Uh, he was trapped to produce what the public wanted as opposed to what he wanted. Has that ever been you? Yeah, I think so. Um, probably on, on occasion. Yes, I felt uh, that I was doing something that I wasn't my ambition particularly. It was there was an expectation that I would produce something of of uh, interest or value, and uh, probably didn't satisfy me as much as I would like. Would like the character you're talking about is fascinating to me because he's a mythical kind of mythic kind of man. He, he's an artist. And uh, he has this bear power. <laughs> so at the, at the end, there's a transformation. He does turn into a bear, as I do on occasion. I have, uh, I have read about it. I've never seen you turn into a bear, oh, but you I've, don't I've read see, the you, accounts. You don't want to see that. That's, you know, run for your life if, I, if that happens. It would be too much? Too much. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he, he does have these mythical qualities. Um, but I love this line where it says what he wanted to do was to please and to astonish God with his paintings. Can you have a higher ambition than that? That's a wonderful incentive and motive. And uh, yes, to, to think that you have written something that might astonish God, that, that uh, it's overboard, of course, but it's, it says something about the nature of ambition and... and uh, how the writer ought to work, I think. That's you again? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I write to Astonish God. And James Earl Jones. <laughs> Is there a difference? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, all right, let's go back to poetry for a second. Yes. So you go to Stanford to be a poet. You edited a collection, you edited a collection and studied... Frederick Tuckerman. Why Tuckerman? I mean, he was known primarily for one poem, right? Cricket? Well, he was known for that poem, which was late in uh, being discovered, you know. I think it was in the 19, middle of the 1900s. 
1950, maybe that that publication was put out by mm-hmm. the Covington Press. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mentor at Stanford, Ivor Winters, wrote something about it in which he said, this is the greatest poem in English of the 19th century. Really? Yeah. So I got interested, of course, in Tuckerman, and I, 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 I edited his work because he was not well known, but he was an excellent poet. So need to do something about that. And so I read him in first on microfilm at Stanford, and then I went to Harvard and uh, read his his uh, manuscripts and put them all together. Yeah, I I think at least what what impressed me about his writing was um, his ability to describe landscapes, which I think is also one of your great gifts. Do you feel like maybe that influenced your ability to describe what? Uh, uh, what we're seeing in the in the land ahead of us, he seemed to be really good at that. Um, I think that I think that's an accurate statement uh, concerning Tuckerman, but it's not a landscape that I write about. You know, right? He, he wrote about uh, Greenfield and and uh, the Connecticut Valley and so mm-hmm. on, which is a wonderful thing to write about. But I, it's not my. It's not what I do. I, I write about a different landscape entirely. True, but but it was just his ability to draw a picture with words that impressed me. And yeah. different landscape. I t- I totally get it. Yeah. But you do the same. Well, I I hope so. Yes. Uh, he was a he was a, a primarily a sonneteer. He wrote a hundred and six sonnets or something like that. And uh, he was it, his sonnets were brought out by Witter Binner in the 1930s, I want to say. And uh, that was the only publication that was available to modern readers. He did publish a book of poems in 1860, and it was well received. He sent copies to Hawthorne and Melville and the literati of his time. And he uh, traveled to England, I think, and met uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, who gave him a copy of... uh, Loxley Hall, I believe. Uh, so he was, you know, in his lifetime, he was, he was, he was, he was known well enough, uh, but but he became he f- became obscure very quickly. And very few people uh, of of my generation knew of Tuckerman. Yeah. So it was. A, I, I'm pleased that I I edited his complete poems because uh, they deserve to be there. He fell again into obscurity. Can't help that, but but his, at least his work is in libraries. Yeah, there's a record. Yeah, and then you went to study Emily Dickinson's poems. Uh, what did she teach you as you immersed yourself into her creative genius? Well, I don't know how to answer that. I think her impression on me was very great, uh, but it would be hard to pin down. I think she's the probably the greatest uh, poet, the greatest American poet of all. Um, and she's she's beyond imitation. You can't imitate her, but she's wonderful, wonderful poet. Her her her, her view of language was so so uh, wonderful, so compelling, and uh, she wrote about so many. She wrote seventeen hundred poems. My goodness. Uh, and I, I read all of them <laughs> wow. uh, in manuscript. But I couldn't help being... And, and, and to, to spend a year at Amherst, which was her hometown, right. 
that was very moving to me. I got to see the the Pelham Hills, which she saw, and got to see where she had her garden. And uh, uh, it was just a wonderful thing. She's a great uh, writer. You've said about poetry that at its best, poetry is an act of disinterested generosity. What in the world does that mean? I love it. It resonates, but I don't know what it means. It means that poetry is a gift that uh, we make uh, and give to other people. We share our love of poetry and uh, our interest in it and our ability to write poetry. And it's, uh, it's an act of disinterested generosity in the sense that uh, it's, um, it's without prejudice. It's, uh, you know, you say disinterested generosity. That means you have it's generosity that is not um, um, prejudiced. It's free. It's there. It's a gift. And you can interpret it and absorb it, however you yeah, can. Yeah, however, however you will. Write, uh, reading it, you know, you can't help forming certain impressions about it, and that's uh, that's a gift, as I say. You know, disinterested generosity. If you write a political document about, uh, you know, the, this statesman or that or this party or that. It's prejudiced. It's, 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 it can't help being um, biased. But if you write a poem that uh, has no bias, that's, it's got a good chance of being a good or a great poem. I love this other line of yours about poetry where you say, the poet says, here, let me show you something. Let me help you see something that you have not seen before. When, when you're writing a poem, is that in your mind? I'm, I want to show a reader something yeah, they yeah. have not seen before? You want to take a subject and do something with it that has not been done before. Reveal a part of it that has been excluded, you know. That's, that's the purpose of literature, I suppose. Shakespeare would say, yes. Yes, that's what I do. Well, I think Mama Day says it too. We'll put Shakespeare and Mama Day in the same category for that. Uh, so you've also written plays and a screenplay. And the screenplay was about the Carlisle School, the Indian School, where, and I'm still stunned by this statement that the mission of the school was kill the Indian, save the man. What, in what universe is that kind of a statement okay? No, but that was the goal of the school, right? Well, it was the it was the goal of the man who founded the school. Okay, that was his purpose. He wanted to. It meant well, but really, but yeah, I, I, you wanted to wanted to wanted to bring the Indian into the modern world and to and to make him a part of the modern age. Um, but it's a terrible statement: kill the Indian and save the child. That's that's uh, I killed a man. That's that's a uh, you're right about that. I mean, it's, it's, it's unthinkable, really. So let, let's take away all of your cultural heritage. Let's take away all of your ancestry. Let's take away any memory you have of what, where you came from. And let's... That, make... that is basically what, uh, what Carlisle was about. Yes, they shaved the 
shave the heads of the kids and put them in uniforms and forbid them to forbid them to speak their own language. It was a terrible thing. And and the scars are very deep and great. You know, a lot of people were destroyed by the experience of the boarding school. Some were, some benefited from it, and uh, we don't know why or how, but that happens. And uh, but but many many you know many did not did not survive that experience. And as I say, uh, cemeteries at, at those schools are there and uh, poignant. Still being discovered. Those cemeteries. Indeed, yeah. So let's go back to storytelling for a moment. You've said, in Man Made of Words, you said, we have no being beyond our stories. Stories are pools of reflection in which we see ourselves through the prism of our imagination. Wow, did I write that? I don't, it wasn't Shakespeare, it wasn't Dickinson, it wasn't Tuckerman. It was Mama Day said that. So, with that in mind, is that really the best way for us to know who we are, is through the stories we tell each other? I think so. I think so. I think there's... I think we, the, the, we express ourselves more deeply and more meaningfully in literature than in other pursuits. Now, I, I'm, I'm not uh, sure I know much about the other pursuits, I'm just guessing, but, but, but I do know that, that uh, language and literature are fundamental, basic, essential to human being. You've also said that stories have moral implications, and I'd, I'd love to know what you mean by that. A story, a, 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 a poem is a, is a moral statement. What does that even mean? Means it has to do with uh, the best that is in us, that what is what is right, as opposed to what is wrong. Um, it's a, a gift again, a charitable gift. You know, if I write a poem in which I express my spirit, um, and you read it, there's a good contact. There's something between us that is that matters and would not be there had it not been for the poem. That puts a lot of responsibility on a writer, it well, seems to me. Yeah, certainly. Yes, why, why write if you can't write, if you don't write responsibly? And that is a moral... Why not just write something to entertain people? What's the matter with that? Nothing, nothing. But it's not as high a form of expression as, as a poem, say. Wow. If, if, you, if you accept my definition of a poem... Uh, a poem is a is a statement concerning the human condition composed in verse, and that that last tag is the thing that distinguishes poem. Verse is a, is is another word for measure. Poetry is measured, and the measure is what is uh, finally important in the in the expression of the of language. Uh, it has to have some kind of form, and it can have different kinds of form. You know, you can write in a, what we call blank verse, a free verse. Uh, but basically, the uh, the form of the, uh, the form of the English poem, developed over hundreds of years, is uh, tried and true. 
Although you have evolved as a poet, I think you've said in recent years you've been freed up a little bit from rhyme and meter from uh, from what you had been uh, doing before. Is that is that an evolution that you like or do you, do you sometimes still play with needing to go back to rhyme and meter? I, I <clears throat> go back to rhyme and meter quite often, but I think... Um, I think I'm very pleased with uh, having brought elements of the oral tradition, the Native American oral tradition, especially, into my writing. It's, a, it's valid. It's wonderful. It's not, it's not English verse, but it's a, it's a kind of uh, expression that is, that is um, based upon repetition largely, uh, imagery, and more, more, more important than anything else, faith. Uh, an understanding that what you're doing is sacred. Oh, we got to talk about that because you've you've really you have spoken of the sacred nature, uh, not only of what you have described, but even the sacred nature of the creative act. It's always a theme in your writing, whether it's about the land or creation or about ancestors or about the human spirit. So, what do you mean? by the term sacred? An understanding that, <clears throat> that the earth, the environment, nature, is uh, composed of spirit. Um, you know, I wrote a book called Earth Keeper fairly recently, and in that I try to indicate that uh, if we're going to save the earth, we're going to have to understand. It's not enough to understand the crust of the earth on which we stand, we have to understand that it is supported by spirit. So that's sacred. That's sacred. And much of the, much of the, the experience of the Native American is sacred. And so it's a great thing to, to write about. It's endless. But by sacred, you mean something other than the material the what we're standing on, this chair. There, there's there's another dimension, correct? Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Yes, that's what I mean. I mean, the earth is composed of spirit. There's something spiritual about our existence. We don't understand enough about it. You've got this great line that says, the sacred is not a discipline, it is a dimension. And that is a, um, I think that's a theme pretty much in everything that you write, that you want to enter into that dimension. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that accurate? It is. I do want to get to that. That's, that's there, and it should be exploited. Not exploited, but made use of. Do you have to kind of come to a place in your own spirit before you can actually get there? Or as soon as you start creating, you're in that kind of cloud? I don't know how to answer that because... Uh, you know, on the one hand, you come into the world possessed of spirit. You're, you come in with, you come in completely innocent, and your your whole your whole uh, your whole being is uh, it comes comes from a source that you have nothing to do with, and that is hard to recognize, but it is essential to your being, and that is an understanding of the spiritual nature of of the earth. And uh, I don't know that that can be taught so so well. You know, you you can't you can't go and take a class in it. 
and uh, yeah, that's come. why it's not a discipline. Right, right. But but when you sit down to write or paint, mm-hmm. do you just kind of collect yourself and say, okay, I need to tap into something before you before you get going? No, uh, that's that's a fair statement. I think it's uh, you know when I when I write or paint, I. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm working with something inside myself. I'm expressing a dimension of my experience that is <laughs> sacred, that, that is spiritual. And that's very important. I, I couldn't work without that understanding. Hmm. Yeah, now we're back to trying to astonish God, right? Right, yeah. Because one of the other things on, on this same theme, you, you've said to encounter the sacred is to be alive at the deepest center of human existence. Um, and my sense is when you're writing and when you're painting, you're coming alive, aren't you? Mm, in a sense, yes. Yes, I feel more, more alive, I think, when I'm working, creating, expressing myself uh, uh, at the deepest level. I, I would love to hear your account of you had an experience as a young man cli- trying to climb down a rock wall mm-hmm. and you found yourself at the bottom and you, you call that a sacred experience. Yes, because I didn't understand how I got to the bottom. I lost consciousness and uh, I was in this situation where I was in great danger. I was suspended in a rocky chute on the side of a cliff. And uh, it was an impossible situation because I I knew that I couldn't stay there very long. I was pressing my arms out against the wall and and then was shaking. Were you thinking, this is it? Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking, this is surely it. I'm I'm not going to get out of this. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground looking up at this place which was very high above me, and I don't know, you know, some, something uh, something intervened in my existence and saved me. And I don't know what it was, but it was an interesting experience, a profound experience. How did it change you? I think it, I think it gave me a, a greater sense of myself, uh, a greater appreciation of who, of life, because I came very close to the end of it, but but there it was and uh, there it is. So I, I, I it was a, it was a transforming experience, and and uh, I don't know much more than that about it. You just know that something happened. Something happened. Yeah. I can't tell you what, you know, I don't know how I made that uh, distance from the, from the chute to the ground. I was sitting on the ground looking up when I re- regained consciousness. Uh, it's just remarkable to imagine all the possibilities of what could, have, what could explain uh, what happened there. I have no explanation for it. Hmm. Uh, so you've got, you've got another line. I love quoting yourself to you because uh, th- these things are just so, so profound. You've got this line in uh, Man Made of Words, let us hold on to the wonder that excites the imagination. Let us not insist upon answers that will diminish our curiosity, 
that will kill our instinct for questions. I love that line, but my question is, how do we do that? How do we keep that sense of wonder and not settle for some cheap certainty? I think we all have a potential for wonder. And the, 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 the task is to appropriate that sense into our daily lives. We must recognize the wonderful when we see it. That, that is what nourishes the soul. You know, there's a wonderful quote in The Great Gatsby, which I, I like to think about. Nick Carraway says at the end, fairly near the end of that book, he says, in one moment, um, man must have held his breath in the presence of this continent. Compelled to an aesthetic contemplation, he neither understood nor desired. Face to face for the last time in human history, with something commensurate to his capacity for wonder. Wow. Wish I'd written that. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> that's pretty good. Pretty good. Oh, yeah. You've written some pretty good stuff uh, that I think um, uh, that, I, that I think is in that same category. I, I love this line of yours uh, where you say, if just one poem stands, in the test of uh, stands the test of time, that's something that justifies your existence. We talked about that before. But, but I love it because, uh, I mean, that means you, you really reached something, right? A poem that stands the test of time. That's, that's an accomplishment. Yes, and it can be a great accomplishment. Like Tuckerman's Cricket, for example. Is, that's, that's one poem that uh, justifies his whole existence. You know, and you can say that about very few poems, but there is one. Yeah, but it gives you meaning. It, uh, you can say, yeah, I did that. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a work that you kind of point to that says, other than the Pulitzer, and maybe, maybe that's the validation, but uh, where you say, that poem did it. That novel reached it. What do you mean by did it? Uh, uh, th that, that justified my existence. That's the one that's going to stand the yeah, test Yeah, but of time. it doesn't have to justify your existence to anyone but yourself. Fair enough. But which one of yours does that? Um, well, there, there are two or three candidates for that. Uh, there's, one, uh, there's one called uh, Before an Early Painting of the Crucifixion, which is uh, really, I spent a lot of time... Uh, fashioning that poem and it's uh, it shows the it shows the kind of concentration i put into it and there's another called the bear which 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 did uh, sort of uh, justify me to other people it was given the um, academy of american poets prize at stanford i wrote it very soon after i got there maybe in the second year that i was there and um it is a syllabic poem, and it is, it is one of the best poems I've written, I think. And they you look back at that and say, that I yeah. did what I set out to do. R right. Mm -hmm. I did it. I did it. And what a, what a great satisfaction that is. Yeah. I, 
I'd, I'd, I would love to know who you write for. Do you, do you sit down and say, this is for children, or this is for people who need to love the land instead of use the land, or do you just sit down and just start writing? Do you have an audience in mind? You know, William Gass was asked that question, and his answer was just hit, hit the nail on the head. He said, well, I don't write for myself because that's self-gratification. That's self I don't write for other people because that's pandering. I write for the thing that, want, that is, that is uh, about to be born. And I thought, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I should write for. Not for any visualized audience, but for the sake of the thing itself. So like Housemaid of Dawn, you aren't thinking, this is totally going to win me the Pulitzer. No, and it came as a complete surprise, as, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> In that book... Yeah. You have this character hearing his grandmother's stories, and this is, this is how you describe it. When she told me those old stories, something strange and good and powerful was going on. I was a child, and that old woman was asking me to come directly into the presence of her mind and spirit. She was taking hold of my imagination, giving me to share in the great fortune of her wonder and delight. It was a timeless timeless thing. Nothing of her old age or my childhood came between us. You had those experiences with your grandmother, didn't you? When she would tell you stories or even your father. Yeah, but primarily my father. Um, yeah, he, he, he was steeped in uh, the oral tradition of the Kiowas, and he told me stories when I was first able to understand them. And uh, they made a great impression on me. And uh, gave me the sense of the power of, of and beauty of language. But that's part of the goal of a story, wouldn't wouldn't you say, to erase that that space between the the teller and the hearer? Yes, yes, I would say that. Uh, and it's just captured in this uh, in in this section so well. But you've you've had that experience listening oh, yes, to your father. Yes, indeed. Also. Her words were medicine. They were magic and invisible. They came from nothing into sound and meaning. And I think that's, you've described earlier, that's what language does. Something that comes from nothing into uh, sound and meaning. That's a, that's a pretty hefty responsibility, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Heavy responsibility. But it comes naturally to someone who is thinking in those terms, you know, from sound into meaning, uh, that's a that's a wonderful transformation, and that's may, maybe one of the one of the uh, definitions of literature itself. You know? Yeah, I. It's just so powerful the way you've done it, and um, and maintained a sense of uh, the ancient myths, your ancestry, the land. Uh, you keep you keep grounded in all of that, is that a conscious effort on your part? Or is that just, this is the prism through which I, I do all of my work? It's the prism that I would like to, to inform all my work. 
You know, this maybe I should say something about silence uh, at this point, because there is a genuine place for silence in literature. It's not always what you express, but what you don't express that matters. And I had, uh, a few years ago, uh, the experience of going through um, the uh, Altamira Caves in Spain and seeing the pictures, the, the drawing, the paintings that had been on the walls there for thousands of years and never discovered, you know, until very recently. But I, I, I was uh, with my then wife and we went through the caves. We came out of there and we went to the car and we could not speak. Could not speak for an hour, maybe. We just had to sit there and, and think about what we'd seen and what it meant. And uh, trying to visualize the artist who put those things on the wall. Um, that was a great experience. And, and I think you can apply that to literature. If you read something that leaves you breathless and silent, it's a good thing. That's how you measure, how you measure uh, great art, perhaps. I think that's one of the ways you know that it's sacred. Exactly, yeah. If you read uh, Moby Dick, for example, I think it's hard to, hard to talk for a while after you read it. And that's, that's because you're so, you're so uh, uh, impressed by it, moved by it. You know? It's a great work of art. And uh, you don't come across those things too often. Mm-mm. You know, you mentioned the paintings in the caves. Um, you've, you started painting well after you had written novels and poems and screenplays. What, what, what creative urge is going on there that you're, that you're working with brushes and ink and charcoal? What's that about? It, it means that I had a, I had a, a long experience of... of uh, drawing and painting when I was a child because my father was a painter. And so I used to watch him work. And I wasn't interested in becoming a painter until um, I went to Russia. Uh, that opened the whole door for me. But, but I watched my father work, and I think I learned a lot by osmosis, just watching him and uh, learning something. And finally, I came to the point where I needed to express myself in those terms. You know, I was uh, in Russia. I was. I felt isolated. Um, I was very conscious of my distance from my native land, and so I began to draw, paint, and that was to relieve myself and to give myself some sort of anchor, which worked. It, it was successful. But you're a different kind of painter than your father. I've oh, seen yes. your father's paintings, and they are very specific lines, straight lines. Uh, yours are a little more... Messy. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't have said messy. I would have said less defined. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So why that? Why that approach? Why these kind of smudges as opposed to straight lines. I, I didn't mean that in an insulting way. It's, it's just more, I can tell you're doing different things with the brushes than... He did a kind of painting that I cannot do. I, I don't have the, the talent for 
for doing the the fine brushwork that he did. Two-dimensional, fine lines. As you say, I, uh, I want to get done and start creating things that come out of my mind. They're not uh, in conformation with, uh, with uh, any particular idea of painting. I just express what is in my, in my view to paint. Spontaneous. I'm much more spontaneous than my father was. Yeah, his would have been much more planned and meticulous. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I think yours are beautiful because my imagination just runs with uh, ah, looking good. at the paintings that you do. Good. So a, a lot of people who will watch this video are aspiring writers. Some would be young people who are, they think maybe they want to be a storyteller or something. Um, do you have any advice for people who want to write? Well, I would tell them to prepare themselves by questioning their experience, trying to find out what what it is made of, and uh, to begin. The beginning is essential. You know, you want to if you write something, um, you want to put down the first word or the first sentence, and let the thing grow from there. And that's uh, that's a trick, of course. And you shouldn't be afraid to imitate, as my uh, my mentor, one of my mentors said, because you will eventually find your own voice, and that's what you really want to do. I think you said about your own writing once that you write about these significant moments, and then you try to cast everything else away. Um, would that be part of your advice as well, is look for the those moments... They don't all have to be ending up at the bottom of a cliff, but moments that say, this changed me, this marked me, this transformed me in some way. Would you, would you advise people to start there? If you can, yeah. If you can center upon a moment or a group of moments that are transforming, that's a good start. That's, a, that's something that gives you a a way to to enter into writing or painting. Yeah. You have this great exchange in uh, in the bear's house where Yahweh and this bear are discussing, and bear says, "Can you teach me to write?" Do you remember what Yahweh says? He says, "I can teach you to write, but I can't teach you to write Moby Dick." Why not? <laughs> Because that is so such an original uh, book, such a powerful act of the imagination, that uh, you can't find that, you know, easily. So, why not? Indeed, I don't know. I don't know. It's a matter of uh, of being uh, of astonishing God. So, thirty years ago. You wrote, or you recited a, uh, a poem at uh, UCSD. And I'm wondering if you could recite it again for us as we conclude. This is the delight song of Tsuaitali. I am a feather on the bright sky. I am the blue horse that runs in the plain. 
I am the fish that rolls shining in the water. I am the shadow that follows a child. I am the evening light, the luster of meadows. I am an eagle playing with the wind. I am a cluster of bright beads. I am the farthest star. I am the cold of the dawn. I am the roaring of the rain. I am the glitter on the crust of the snow. I am the long track of the moon in a lake. I am a flame of four colors. I am a deer standing away in the dusk. I am a field of sumac and the pomme blanche. I am an angle of geese in the winter sky. I am the hunger of a young wolf. I am the whole a dream of these things. You see, I am alive. I am alive. I stand in good relation to the earth. I stand in good relation to the gods. I stand in good relation to all that is beautiful. I stand in good relation to the daughter of St. Tainte. You see, I am alive. I am alive. Scott Mamaday, thank you for being with us at our Writers' Symposium. Thank you for coming to my home. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.